The indictment of four individuals linked to a massive cyber attack campaign waged between 2012 and July 2015 against U.S. banking institutions and other financial services firms has gotten lots of media attention and has been noted by federal prosecutors as being linked to the largest theft of consumer data from a single U.S. financial institution, a.k.a. J.P. Morgan Chase. The investigation into this cyber crew and the subsequent indictments are indeed intricate, complex, and required authorities to connect many seemingly disparate parts. But how much impact will these indictments have on cybersecurity long-term? And what are the implications, if any, for U.S. banks where expectations for enhanced cyber defenses are concerned? Here, Al Pasquale, Director of Fraud and Security at Javelin Strategy and Research, reviews some of the high points noted in the two indictments issued this week against Israeli citizens Jerry Shalom and Ziv Orenstein and U.S. citizens Joshua Aaron and Anthony Mergio. And he helps us understand what all of this means for banking institutions. Hi, I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group. So, Al, as I mentioned, this is a very intricate case that hinged on a very long investigation into Shalone, who seems to be the mastermind behind these cyber attacks and his co-conspirators, some of whom I named in the introduction. Is this the most complex investigation you've ever seen involving an attack against a leading U.S. banking institution, which in this case is Chase? So it's an interesting question, Tracy, because... As far as how successful the attack was, and it was very successful, they indicated that uh, Shalona had well over $100 million in the bank in Switzerland, right? You know, there are a lot of moving parts here, a variety of crimes, and so that definitely lends to the complexity, but we've seen some other really big cases. But to your point, yes, very complex, a lot of moving parts. You know, we're talking about a pump-and-dub scheme, you know, we're talking about uh, illegal casinos, and card processing and you know, intimidation of other criminals. So it's impressive in scope and scale, that's for certain. Al, other institutions beyond J.P. Morgan Chase are also believed to have been targeted by this same group. According to the indictments, 12 financial services were hit between 2012 and the summer of 2015. Do you have any thoughts about what other institutions you think may have been targeted? Uh, well, there's an indication within these indictments that a number of brokerage firms were affected. So uh, potentially companies like Fidelity, Scottrade, E-Trade, which would make sense given you know, that they were involved in some market manipulation. I mean, those, those client lists are extremely valuable, um, not only for you know, folks in the industry trying to do legitimate business, but you know, for criminals in this case as well. So do you think that some of the same kind of information that was taken from J.P. Morgan Chase, which basically included customer contact information, was also stolen from some of these other organizations? Oh, absolutely. It um, gave the criminals an opportunity to either pose as legitimate representatives of those institutions or as being affiliated with them. And given their scheme, that information just had a lot of value. They knew you know, that the targets that they were going after from those lists, uh, you know, they were investors, they were folks that you know, had some money that they could squeeze from them, right? And so you know, I wouldn't be surprised if you know, that was their most highly targeted bit of data. Al, do you think that this entire campaign was purely a cybercrime attack with cybercrime motives, or could there have been some type of nation-state backing as well? That's tough. There was quite a bit of suggestion after the chase breach occurred that you know, nation-states were involved, more nation-state was involved, you know, given the size of the target. Right? I think it kind of you know, took everyone aback. That being said, um, there's not a lot of indication within the indictment or the indictments that that is the case. Now, it could be that you know, certain you know, countries are turning a blind eye to the activity, maybe more so than they did in the past, you know, Russia being you know, a really you know, specific example of that since everything has been happening in the Ukraine and the sanctions. You know, it may be that FSB was aware and simply is not acting or is enabling in some way, but we don't have a good specific indication. I wouldn't be surprised, but we can't say with certainty. 
So let's go back to talk a little bit about the attacks themselves. Again, we've discussed how intricate and complex a lot of this was, and there were many different moving parts. How long do you think attackers might have been inside some of these organizations' networks before they were detected? Um, you know, in some cases, the indication, at least within the indictment, was that it was very short. You know, there was some use of heartbleed, for example, right? And they didn't get a chance to act on that. You know, as soon as that became public knowledge, you know, they took advantage of it. You know, but the bank that they were targeting also you know, remediated that threat pretty quickly as well. In other cases, there was indication that they were doing some digging, right? That they were trying to, you know, get as much information as possible. So, you know, they potentially could have been in systems um, for a year or more. But, you know, that much isn't clear. So uh, one thing that, that I found interesting about this case is that we're looking at an attack that basically was waged against numerous financial services firms between 2012 and 2015. With all of the focus that banks have placed on cybersecurity, namely because of regulatory mandates in recent years, how could breaches like this still be possible? Uh, I think that's a question that's fair, whether it's within financial services or, you know, defense. You know, fact of the matter is we know that certain types of attacks, you know, work. We know that the endpoints tend to be more vulnerable. And so I think you know, we've seen some indication here that, you know, that could have been involved. And, you know, there was some manipulation of accounts from inside as well. So, I mean, they kind of, they worked every angle, right? And ultimately, that's what it comes down to, the fact that, you know, you can't depend that every door and window, you know, into your organization from a cyber perspective can be completely sealed. And so they're going to test for that weak link. And they found them in certain places. And so despite the best efforts of regulators, you know, the, the, the new cyber assessment tool, you know, updated guidance even now, it doesn't mean that we're going to be able to remediate or plan for all of these threats. So not a surprise. The fact of the matter is, you know, this was a really, it was a complex crime. And they made money any way that they could. They had no qualms about trying different things. It was simply doing whatever worked, right? And we, we see that, you know, through the list of actions that they took. And so you can't be everywhere at once, Tracy, I guess is the bottom line. And that's a valid point, Alan. As we've always said in the industry, even if you don't think you have been breached, you either have been breached or just didn't know it or you will be breached in the future. But do you think that there are certain things that banking institutions should be investing in that they still aren't from a technology and cyber defense standpoint? Well, um, something simple. I mean, we're talking about the theft of a lot of customer data. You know, that data, you know, should have in and of itself been better protected, you know, rather than just worried about encrypting you know, payment data and account data, personally identifiable information, you know, should also be obfuscated in the network or at least made as hard to get to, you know, as possible. And we know that, you know, in the case of the Chase breach, that's not what happened, right? It was, you know, something that was much more readily available to them than it probably should have been. On top of that, again, I think that there are issues related to protecting, you know, endpoints when criminals are targeting, you know, different businesses, whether it's in the financial services industry, in defense, healthcare. We saw this quite a bit last year. They are targeting the employees through spear phishing campaigns, through malware. And so that has been a tried and true approach. And so that means that institutions need to do a better job of monitoring the behavior of endpoints, of the users on those endpoints. And I, I think that could be a helpful strategy, regardless if we're talking about this case or others. Al, what do you think that the implications of these indictments could be for banking institutions now that it's been confirmed by federal prosecutors that it wasn't just Chase, it wasn't just one single banking institution that was impacted, but it was several that actually were breached and had data that was exposed? Uh, well, first and foremost, I think it acts as a bit of a wake-up call. You know, cyber crime isn't unique to this organization or to, to the folks who are indicted. You know, this level of complexity, while it is among the most complex that, you know, I've seen or heard of, it doesn't mean that there aren't others out there trying to 
you know, replicate this or who have been trying to replicate you know, this type of scale and diversity of crime. I mean, you know, we're hearing that the mafia in the United States is actually you know, spread out quite a bit into uh, cybercrime. So this is going to become uh, much more the norm than the outlier. And so financial industry, the companies affected certainly, but the financial industry as a whole, both within the United States and outside the United States, should be, again, taking this as that wake-up call, the clarion call for action and, you know, to prepare themselves for more of this, right? So every bit of data that you have, you know, has value. They're going to find a way to take advantage of it. You know, they're going to want to gain access, you know, to your systems, not only to commit fraud from the accounts that you're servicing and affect the trust that you have among, you know, your account holders, but also, again, to use your good name in order to manipulate customers. Uh, and there's probably going to be schemes in the next few years that we haven't even conceived of yet. And so you know, at the end of the day, this is going to become a tougher environment because while our city streets you know, may be experiencing you know, uh, lower crime than we've seen in a decade in most places, in cyberspace, we're only just getting started. So uh, let's go back to the indictments quickly. I'd like to just highlight some of the points that were included in the indictment that was brought against Shalone and some of his co-conspirators and some of the charges that have been brought against these four defendants overall. Some of the alleged crimes date back to 2007, so it seems pretty obvious that investigators had to have been watching these guys for some time. Don't you agree? I do, and there's some indication that they, I wouldn't say necessarily had, you know, folks on the inside, but they did have some witnesses cooperating as well. Now there's a bit of a disclosure within the indictment of at least a couple related to the stock scheme. Um, I suspect that there are probably others as well that they don't want to disclose at this point. So you've mentioned that you think that informants probably were involved in helping bringing some of these guys to justice, but do you think that there may have just been some mistakes that they made where they didn't cover their tracks well? I know in one case, a photograph that was posted on Instagram linked two of the defendants as they were on holiday in Moscow as an example. Do you think that it was just kind of connecting all these different things together? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's um, <laughs> social media has gotten ISIS in trouble, right? Um, you know, the fact of the matter is, you know, we like to talk about our successes. We you know, like to make it you know, known. And, you know, criminals like anyone else want to interact in the public sphere. They have their own friends. And so, you know, once law enforcement becomes aware of the fact that, you know, you are a potential problem, um, or possibly related to something like this, then they're going to watch you closely and you know, those kinds of things are low-hanging fruit. So uh, I think that definitely played a role. And again, like I said, once you're on the radar, you know, then they're looking at who you're talking to online and maybe not everything, all of those conversations might have been encrypted, so they may have gotten some intelligence from that as well. And then they start pulling out some threads. They find someone who will talk to them. And then the ball really starts to, uh, to get rolling. And then, Al, before we close, are there any final thoughts or any points that stand out about the indictments that you'd like to highlight for our audience? Yeah, I mean, you had asked about um, what this means for financial institutions. There was an interesting point in here ties into the whole stock market you know, manipulation piece. One of the comments between uh, the co-conspirators uh, when they were talking about the information that they were stealing from financial institutions was uh, that they wanted more that you know, they were potentially going to be looking for you know, uh, inside information on these companies, you know, non-public information that they could use uh, to make money in the stock market or potentially you know, use against you know, some of these banks as well. This was far-ranging, right? I mean, this was you know, fraud wherever they could get it. And you know, while we think about the theft of kind of non-public information as being something we're more likely to see out of a nation state or we're more likely to see out of a group whose only purpose you know, is to commit corporate espionage, so to support insider trading you know, that's being done at brokerage firms, you know, or hedge funds. This is truly this is organized cybercrime, and, you know, every bit of data that the, the bank has, again, was, you know, was on their radar. 
So, I mean, I would be concerned from a number of aspects, right? It's not simply a matter of protecting your reputation, not a matter of protecting accounts. This is a matter of stock price, and this is a matter of shareholder value. So, if the boards, you know, of these, uh, you know, financial institutions, obviously those affected, but you know, financial institutions at large are not worried yet about you know cyber-related risks. You know, they really should be because this can affect every part of the organization. Well, all these are great points, and I'm sure as more unfolds here, we'll be hearing more from the industry over the course of the next coming days and weeks because, again, there are so many different facets to this case that we can look at. But I appreciate your time, and thank you for your insights. Absolutely, Tracy, anytime. Again, we've just heard from Al Pasquale of Javelin. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kitten.